You are listening to sermon audio from Grace Community Church of Gresham, Oregon. For more information about service times and ways to connect, visit us online at gracecc.net. Well, good morning once again to all of you. And uh, for those of you who I haven't had a chance to meet who are our guests this morning, welcome. My name is Jay. I'm the, I'm the lead pastor. And you join us on a Sunday when we continue our journey through the Gospel of Luke. And we're three quarters of the way through this amazing Gospel together. And this morning we come to Luke chapter 22. And uh, as we prepare to dive into that, I ran across something that hit the newswire earlier this week. So watch out. Your pastor's been reading the news again. And I, I want to read this article to you. And you may have seen this, you may have not. But this is what it says. Detroit, Michigan. A Michigan man continues to recover from a cobra bite that sent doctors scrambling to hunt down antivenom. The man, 26 years old, from Pinconning Township, Michigan, became nauseous and started vomiting about 20 minutes after his pet albino monocled cobra bit him on the night of July 14th, and that's a picture of a monocled cobra. He initially was treated at Bay City, a Michigan-area hospital, but then was airlifted to Detroit after he stopped breathing because his respiratory muscles became paralyzed, according to the Detroit Medical Center officials. Pinconning Township, by the way, is about 117 miles north of Detroit. Monocled cobras are native to South and Southeast Asia, according to reptilesmagazine.com. Their deadly venom is one of the fastest-acting snake venoms in the world, the magazine said. Toxicology experts at the hospital reach out to the Toledo Zoo in Toledo, Ohio, and eight vials of antivenom were sent to Detroit Medical Center Hospital and administered to the man shortly after his arrival. However, quote, the genetic antivenom, which covers many but not all species of poisonous snakes, had little effect, and the patient's condition continued to worsen, said hospital officials. Now, a couple things that jump out from this story. Why in the world does anyone have a pet cobra? Right? And the responses to this article that were posted were, as you might imagine, less than gracious. You know, someone saying, hey, this proves Forrest Gump was right. Stupid is as stupid does. And another article, or posting rather, that said, you know, I'm not a macroevolutionist, but if I was, I would say this is natural selection at work here in the human race, you know. But if we can park our cynicism here and our negativity for just a minute... As I began to think about this, my first response was, yes, who in the world has a pet cobra? But secondly, as I thought about this, you know, though, I'm more like that guy than I would care to admit. Because for, in all fairness, I don't have a pet cobra at home, thankfully, but I have used some pretty poor judgment in my life. And I've done some things that have been less than bright in my life and haven't made good choices at times. But there's another way that I'm like this guy. And it's a way that you're like this guy, whether you know and appreciate it or not. You have a fatal venom that runs through your veins. In a very real sense, you have been bit by a deadly snake. And it's this venom that is someday going to take your physical life and mine. 
But it has implications way beyond that. And as we come now to Luke chapter 22, which is a celebration of the Lord's Supper, this is the last meal that Jesus had with his disciples before he was crucified on the cross the very next day. As we come to this story, this story reaches all the way back to the book of beginnings and all the way back to the Old Testament. And the New Testament writers, especially the Gospel writers, presupposed and assumed that you and I would know our Old Testaments because the New Testament builds on the Old. It is the fulfillment of the Old Testament. And you have to understand and connect some dots on some things in order to truly understand and appreciate the significance of what happens in our passage today. So, we're going to go back all the way to the book of beginnings to another snake story. And it's your snake story, and it's mine. God, as Christianity teaches, created everything. So he creates the heavens and the earth. And he creates animals and plants and vegetation. And then he creates man. He creates Adam. And puts Adam in the garden. And gives Adam a job and a purpose to tend the garden and and is there with Adam. But tells Adam that he may not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And if he does, he will die. And then God creates Eve. And then Satan, the snake, comes to Eve and he tempts her and she sins. And Adam then chooses to sin as well by both of them eating from the tree of knowledge and good and evil. And sin and death and disease and evil enter the world. And we've been living with that reality ever since. And so God has to deal with this. He has to respond to it. And so it tells us now in Genesis chapter 3 that this is how God responds. He responds by A, rightfully judging what has happened here. And he comes to the snake and he says, So the Lord God said to the serpent, said to Satan, Because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock and all wild animals. You will crawl on your belly and you will eat dust all the days of your life. That's literal, but it's also figurative. In the original language there in Hebrew, to eat dust was symbolic of total defeat. So he's basically saying, You're done. And this is how I'm going to defeat you. I will put enmity between you and the woman. Notice this is singular between you, Satan, and the woman, Eve, and between your offspring and hers, this now is plural, and this is where we enter the story, he will crush your head, and now becomes singular. He will crush your head, and you will strike his heel. Who is the he that's being talked about here? Because the you is Satan, but the he is unnamed. But what is set in motion here is the entire focus of the Bible. If anyone ever asks you what the Bible is about, you can answer them in one word, and it's this, redemption. The Bible is a story of redemption. God is now going to restore things to the way he always intended them to be. Death, evil, sin, natural disasters, none of that was ever intended to be part of God's creation. So God is now going to work this plan of redemption to restore things the way they were always intended to be, and this is a promise of one who is going to come to crush the head of the snake. So now fast forward several thousand years. God has entered into this covenant, this commitment, special relationship with this nation called Israel. They are enslaved in Egypt. 
They are slaves to the Egyptians. History and God's word tells us that they were there 430 years. And God raises up this man by the name of Moses. Sends Moses to Pharaoh, the leader of the Egyptians, the ruler of the Egyptians, and demands that he let God's people go. He goes to him ten times. And every time, Pharaoh says no. And every time, God sends a plague. And each of those plagues was designed in part to undermine and discredit the false gods that the Egyptians were worshipping. Every one of those plagues was a shot at one of their false gods, proving who the real God was. And yet Pharaoh and the Egyptians keep resisting what God wants them to do, and that is to release and free his people. And so the tenth plague is a plague where God will send an angel of death who will pass over the nation. And as he does, he will pass over every household, and in every household where there is not blood from a lamb that has been slaughtered and spread on the doorposts, the firstborn animal and the firstborn of that family will die. And that's exactly what happens. The angel of death passes over the nation. And when he comes to those doorposts that are covered in blood, he passes over them. He passes by them and goes on. And those doorposts that did not have the blood of a lamb covering them, the firstborn animal, firstborn of the family, dies. And then there is an exodus. Pharaoh frees the Israelite people. But all this points to the future when there will be another who will come, a greater Moses, who will lead the final exodus and who will be the ultimate sacrificial Passover lamb. And now we're going to fast forward about 1,500 years to Luke chapter 22 today. So with that in mind, now we read Luke 22 together. So here we go. Now the festival of unleavened bread called the Passover was approaching. And the chief priests and teachers of the law were looking for a way to get rid of Jesus. For they were afraid of the people. Then Satan, the snake is still part of the story, then Satan enters Judas, called Iscariot, one of the twelve. And Judas went to the chief priests and the officers of the temple guard and discussed with them how he might betray Jesus. They were delighted and agreed to give him money. He consented and watched for an opportunity to hand Jesus over to them when no crowd was present. If you've been with us in the Gospel of Luke, Luke is very deliberately, and all the Gospel writers do this, build to this point in the history of what happened with Jesus. The religious leaders really representing the nation at first don't believe Jesus and then they disbelieve Jesus, meaning they're not struggling to believe. They're now saying there is no way we're buying into this. You are not the promised one. You are not the Messiah. And it crosses a line where they decide they're going to kill him. They're going to take him out. And they're delighted because now it's going to be an inside job. They don't have to do it. One of Jesus' own disciples is going to do it. And they have to do it when when the crowds aren't around because the crowds, by and large, want to hear Jesus. And a number of them truly are following Jesus. Because the city had swelled in population to three times its normal size because the Passover was one of those pilgrimage festivals where if you were a Jew and you could, you went to Jerusalem in order to celebrate that festival. Following the Exodus, thousands of years earlier, God had mandated that the people practice and remember and live out the Passover 
every year in order to remember that exodus from their history, but also to point to the exodus that would someday come for all people from the brokenness of this world. And so, this is something that has been practiced for a lot of generations. There's a ton of people there. It says in the passage prior to this that Jesus went to the hill of the Mount of Olives to spend the night because there was no room for people in the city. That's why it says he slept on that hill. It was like a tent city all around the city. All these crowds, many of them following Jesus. So they got to take him out very deliberately. So then came the day of unleavened bread on which the Passover lamb had to be sacrificed. So Jesus sent Peter and John saying, go, make preparations for us to eat the Passover. Where do you want us to prepare for it? They asked. He replied, as you enter the city, a man carrying a jar of water will meet you. Follow him to the house that he enters and say to the owner of the house, the teacher asks, where is the guest room where I may eat the Passover with my disciples? He will show you a large room upstairs, all furnished. Make preparations there. We don't have time for all the detail here, but it's very interesting that Luke captures this because Mark does as well. They are to look for a guy carrying a jar of water. That's exceptional because in that culture, women and children by and large carried water and maybe slaves. And we're not told this man is a slave. So there's, there's a couple pieces to this. Jesus clearly has done some advanced planning. The guy who they're going to send him to knows that there's a place where the teacher needs to have the Passover celebration with his disciples, but this is distinctive that it was this guy who they were to meet. Okay, well, that is what it is. So they left and found things just as Jesus had told them. So they prepared the Passover. So when the hour came, Jesus and his apostles reclined at the table. And he said to them, I have eagerly desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. For I tell you, I will not eat again until it finds fulfillment in the kingdom of God. So after taking the cup, he gave thanks and said, Take this and divide it among you. And that's what you would expect with a Passover meal. Because the Passover meal was more than just a meal. It was more than just a ritual. It was more than just a celebration. It was a remembrance of Israel's history. It was something they practiced every year to remember how God had freed them from the Egyptians and to look forward to the promise of the exodus that would one day come for all people. And so there was someone who always presided over the meal. Typically, it was the father in the family. And usually, it would be the youngest child who, as they began the meal, he would say, hey, what's this meal about? Probably knowing exactly what the meal was about. And then, they would walk through all the elements of the meal. Someone would need to preside over this and direct it and explain it. So Jesus is clearly in that role here. But what he is about to do is an absolute game changer. He goes on to say, For I tell you, I will not drink again from the fruit of the vine until the kingdom comes. Okay, that's expected, but now look at this. And he took bread, gave thanks, and broke it, and gave it to them, saying, This is my body given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Jesus just changed thousands of years of tradition and ritual in history with what he just said. Now you need to let that sink in for a moment. What is a tradition that you practice in your family or in your life? You may not be able to identify one. A number of you can. 
We can. We have a number of traditions in our family. One of those that we practice is uh, on Christmas Eve, we sleep under the Christmas tree. And I posted this um, on Facebook earlier this week in the preview of what we were going to be talking about this morning and talked about how this is something that was passed down from my wife's family to, to our family today. Her, her parents did that. They did that as a family. Our kids are now all young adults and they have said, we hope to practice this with our families someday. But whether we have families or not, we're going to come back and sleep under the Christmas tree with you if we don't. You know, this is just, it's in our DNA. It's, that's a little weird, I know. But that's, that's what we do. We do that as a family. Now, go with me here for a minute. Can you imagine this time-honored, looked-forward-to, celebrated tradition on Christmas Eve with my family? If this Christmas Eve I stood up and I said, you know, we're no longer going to do that. We're no longer going to sleep under the Christmas tree. How well do you think that would go over with my family? Well, my son is 6'4 and bigger than me. <laughs> my daughters have grown up with him. Three against one, that's probably not going to work out so well. Now, treachery and old age are a good combination for me, but I, you know, there, I, I don't really stand much with That would not go over well. I'd have a riot on my hands because this is something that's cherished and looked forward to and celebrated and now I'm arbitrarily changing it or not doing it anymore. Jesus completely goes off script here by personalizing this and saying, this is my body. That wasn't part of an, a, a Seder. That was not part of a Passover. Or is he really changing it? Could it be that he's focusing it? Because he is the fulfillment of it. So we read on. In the same way after supper, he took the cup, saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood, which is poured out for you. Now he personalizes that. Now please understand, part of the Passover in remembering what God had done for the people, this is spelled out in the Old Testament in the second book of the Old Testament in Exodus chapter 6. There were four cups that you drank as part of the ceremony and celebration of the Passover. And these are the four cups. The cup of sanctification, the cup of deliverance, the cup of redemption, the cup of praise. Most scholars believe this was the cup of redemption that Jesus was drinking and calling attention to at this point in the Passover. What is he saying here? I am the greater Moses. This is the final exodus. I am the ultimate Passover lamb. But there's something missing here. And it's profoundly significant. This and the other Gospels describe the bread, the cup, at this last supper Jesus had with his disciples before going to the cross and his crucifixion and death. But what's missing here? What was the main course in a Passover celebration? The lamb. None of the Gospels mention it. And presumably Jesus doesn't either. Now, we don't really have an equivalent for this, but let's try to go there a little bit. Thanksgiving, American holiday. We have practiced this for hundreds of years as a country. And I know, and I get, there are some of you who are vegan 
or vegetarian, or you just don't like turkey, so you don't have turkey at the meal. I get all that. Let's just park that for just a minute. Can you imagine Thanksgiving without turkey? Now, some of you, again, you don't like it. No, that's easy to imagine that. But go with me. Like, let's say you don't. Imagine Thanksgiving without It's like, why are we doing this? What, what's this about? There's no mention of the lamb in this celebration. And it is, it is the main course. It is the focal point of a Passover Seder. In fact, you'll get to experience this on Ash Wednesday of this next year. We are going to have a Passover meal. We're going to have a Seder. We're going to bring Dan Sered back, who was here three years ago when we did this. And you're going to get to see what a Passover meal was about, and you will be amazed at how much of it points to Jesus. It's absolutely astounding. So mentally file that away. You have to go to this if you've never been to one before. It is remarkable. But that being said, the lamb was the central part of the meal, not being talked about at all. Why? Could it be that the lamb wasn't just on the table, but the Passover lamb was seated at the table? And that's why it's not being emphasized. Because the ultimate Passover lamb is right there. So, okay. So what's the big deal? Well, this is part of the big deal. Is that what we're going to practice together today here in just a little bit teaches us the purpose of Jesus' death. Think about it. Think about it this way. Do you realize that every major world religion, every major belief system has Jesus in it? Everyone wants Jesus in their religion. He's a prophet. He's a sage. He's an avatar. He's a wise man. He's the divine example. He's in every major world religion. There's no other historical figure who's ever been like that and who is like that. Jesus hands down, is the most influential person who has ever walked the face of the earth. Whether you recognize him as God or not, that's, you can't really argue that. So if there's all this focus on Jesus' death, if that, a cross, is the symbol of Christianity, then it makes his death central to Christianity. So why is that? Why Jesus died? So if he just died as an innocent man, died like presumably we're all going to die someday, then what's the point of all this? If he died just for himself, it's, it's really senseless and it's tragic. An innocent man died. And really he sacrificed his life for, for nothing. It's almost like suicide. But, but is that really what happened here? Because unless Jesus died substitutionally on behalf of someone else, his death really has no purpose. He's just like anyone else who, who dies. For those of you who were here last week, Pastor Gabe Myers, who leads and shepherds our, our fourth service that happens this afternoon, he preached in all of our services last week, or at least our morning services here, and he told this story about this family here in our community who 
some friends, two brothers out swimming together, and one of them drowned. And this other brother who understandably is, is trying to make sense out of something you really can't make sense out of and is struggling and hurting and grieving and struggling with guilt. As Pastor Gabe was talking with him, his guilt at not being able to get to his brother to save his life and just working that through together as, as much as you can and Gabe asking him, so if your brother was here, what do you think he'd say to you? Well, I think he'd say, I'm glad it was me and not you. Yeah, that probably is what he'd say. And that whole reality of someone who will die for someone else, you bet that means something. And if Jesus is who he claims to be, if he is who the Bible says he is, then he didn't just die for himself, he died for all of us. Which, if that really is true, then that means he is the fulfillment of that. He is the greater Moses. He is the final exodus. He is the ultimate Passover lamb who dies for everybody because that was always the plan. He is the fulfillment of God's promise and plan to redeem and restore this world to what it was always intended to be. Which means, if that is true, then we need to take him into our lives. It's not just to mentally agree with this. You have to engage with it and and really take him into your lives. I believe that Christianity is the only worldview that teaches that God literally comes and lives inside of you through his Holy Spirit. And that's what the Lord's Supper points to. Just like you eat bread and drink juice, we take Jesus into our lives. You know, back to our story with Cobra Guy. That general anti-venom was not working for him. And it won't work for me and it won't work for you. Because there is a brokenness that pervades all of us. The Bible calls it sin, but it is a brokenness that is selfish and self-focused and self-absorbed. And it transcends what we do and don't do. It is a bent and an orientation to our life. And so any attempt to deal with that poison that goes through our veins through any other mechanism or means is not going to do it. might help a little bit, but it's not going to change what really needs to be changed and dealt with. But we'll try. We will look to things like work and bury ourselves and pour ourselves into work because that gives us fulfillment and purpose. And and somehow maybe that will will address what we know in our core needs to change, but, but, but it really doesn't. In fact, the reality is we're all hardwired to look for that thing that's going to do that for us to give us purpose and meaning and hope and help. And so we'll look to a relationship. We'll look to a spouse to do that for us. We'll look to other things in our lives. We'll look to sex. We'll look to a career. We'll look to stuff. We'll look to what the world calls success. Boy, all those things are, at the end of the day, what truly is going to cure what ails you because that's what our culture tells us over and over and over again. And yet, it's not enough. And it was never intended to be enough. 
The fact that we live, a broken, live in a broken world and that we're broken people, that really shouldn't be a hard sell for you. Have you ever turned on the news? I was talking with my family of origin last week. They don't know the Lord. And to a person, we all agree, man, this world is jacked up and messed up. And none of us like to watch the news because it's so depressing and discouraging. It's one newsreel after another of brokenness and hurt and selfishness and heartache and loss and pain. We all get that. We really do. That shouldn't be a hard sell. But what we're talking about today is the antidote to that. Because the Bible is a story about a God who enters into brokenness, who brings his grace to brokenness, and is in the act and the process of restoring and redeeming and repairing this world to what he always intended it to be. And he does that through the ultimate Passover sacrificial lamb, Jesus Christ. And you see, the reality is some of you have all the things I've talked about. You have relationships. You have money. You have stuff. You have success. And yet you're still settling for less than what God has for you. Because the reality is the poison that we're all born with, that all runs, that runs rather through all of us, that's in our veins, is someday going to claim your life and mine. And beyond that, there's another death that potentially comes with that, and that is to be eternally separated from the God who created you to live in right relationship with Him. The only anti-venom for that is Jesus Christ. We need a transfusion of His life and His hope and His grace and forgiveness. And that is what Jesus was illustrating with this. And what this remembers and celebrates every time we do it together as a church. Because you see, you don't just add Jesus to your life. He is your life. And a number of you, hopefully all of you would say, yeah, I believe that. But there are some of you who quite frankly you don't. You say you believe it, but your life doesn't reflect it. Because in the Bible, and especially the New Testament, when it talks about belief that is always married to action, it doesn't mean just giving lip service to saying you believe this. It means living your life accordingly. And it means that it is a constant process of remembering this reality and turning back to Jesus. The Bible calls that repentance. And it's an ongoing thing that we practice. Believing him for something better. Trusting him for something more. And if you are not in that struggle, you really need to search your heart and ask yourself, do I really believe? Because this is a struggle. We live in a broken world with broken people. People who keep pet cobras next to your house and mine. (laughs) Dude, what are you doing? But beyond that... It's a reality. And actually, the struggle to constantly realign your heart and mind with Jesus's, to make his priorities yours, to continue to face into this bentness and brokenness that that tries to rear its head in your life and calls you back to things that you know take you from the Lord, 
The fight with that, the struggle with that, is proof of fruit in your life. That actual process shows that you do believe in Jesus and you are trying to follow him with your life. And that's why it's so important that we remember what he has done for us. Do you notice that throughout this passage, Jesus says over and over again, remember, 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 because we tend to forget. And like you, I need to be reminded daily, sometimes hourly, who Jesus is, what he has done, what he's doing, and what he's going to do, because I forget. Back to our story. Finally, the man's family helped doctors identify the species of snake and in turn pinpointed the type of antivenom that was needed. With the man's prognosis looking grim, medical center officials contacted the Miami-Dade County Venom Response Program in Florida, and 20 vials of the appropriate antivenom were put on a commercial flight to Detroit and administered to the man via IV that next morning. He remains hospitalized but is on the road to recovery. My friends, you and I are on the road to recovery if we know Jesus. As hard and as difficult and sometimes as painful as this life is, we have hope that someday things are going to get better. And on our very best days, when things are going our way, things are going to get better. That is the hope that we have in Jesus Christ and we remember and celebrate that every time we celebrate communion together. And he is so good. He really is. And part of his goodness is giving us each other. We discover God in community by design. Communion is done in community by design. We have prayer teams off to the sides by design. We've talked about the power of God, the presence of God, the promises of God. Boy, as you're wrestling through those realities, thinking through those things, if there's anything we can pray for you about, please, please take advantage of these teams we have available. And following Jesus really is a defining moment decision. We've talked a lot about that. I, I hope that you know him. I hope that you've received the antidote through him in your life because if you haven't don't leave here without talking to our prayer team myself there is nothing better than knowing Jesus nothing so don't miss out on him I want to leave you with these words that Jesus gives us from John chapter 6 I referenced this earlier in our time this morning but some people came to Jesus and they basically said what do we got to do to get in? What's the work we have to do to enter the kingdom of God? And this is what he said. The work of God is this, to believe in the one he sent. Then Jesus declared, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me will never go hungry. Whoever believes in me will never thirst. I hope you believe that because it's true. So let me pray his blessing over you. God, thank you for each person who is here. Lord, thank you that we seek and discover you in community. God, would you continue to reveal yourself to us through the rhythms and days of this next week? 
And God, thank you that you are the one who saves us from brokenness and calls us and empowers us through your spirit to a life of joy and hope and peace. I pray that for each person here. And I thank you that you're with us and that you're with us as we go. And it's in your name we pray, in Jesus' name. God's people said, Amen. Amen. We hope to see you next down the hallway. If you're new here at Grace, we'd love to meet you. Blessings on all of you. See you next week. for listening to sermon audio from grace community church for more information about service times and ways to connect visit us online at gracecc.net